Amen. Well, let me pray for us. And we've already heard the sermon. Uh, let's ask God to help us here. Father, again, we thank you so much for your divinely inspired word, for your spirit which moved the apostle to pen these words. We thank you, O Lord, for your sovereign grace in preserving the word for us, that we might have it and might treasure it and might hide it in our hearts. And we thank you for the encouragement that we get from uh, memorizing the scripture together, Uh, whether we are memorizing the key verses or memorizing the whole book whether we stumble at points or whether we are smooth, in all of that, Lord, you are just bringing treasures of your word out of our hearts. And we praise you for that. And we pray that you would help us to follow the pattern of sound words, to think your thoughts after you, uh, to delight in your truth, and to live by it more faithfully day by day as you give us grace. So, Lord, we thank you for verses 19 to 30. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Give us ears to hear, build us up in the faith, and use us, O Lord, for the work of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are continuing in our series of Philippians, through Philippians. Uh, If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands. Uh, A couple of folks who are coming down the aisle with Bibles, we would love to uh, lend you a Bible if you need one, if you hold your hands high so uh, folks can see. You got a couple of folks down front here, brother. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We want you to take this Bible, write your name in it, uh, read it every day, uh, pray through what you read, talk with others about what you read, uh, and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right up front here, Timothy. There we go. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, as we try to do the same from week to week. We've been in the book of Philippians. It's a letter written by a man named Paul. Paul was an apostle is a fancy Bible word, which means messenger. He's a unique messenger, though. He was chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to be one of the early leaders of the church when the church was first beginning. And Paul's ministry was all over the Mediterranean world. He traveled from city to city preaching the gospel, gathering new Christians into congregations like this one, into churches, and then moving on to plant other churches. And from time to time, he wrote letters back to these churches. So you might think, um, some of you may receive uh, missionary support letters. Oh, this is very much a missionary support letter. Paul was in Philippians, according to Acts, in Philippi, excuse me, according to Acts chapter 16 for just a, a few short weeks before he was run out of town by a mob, really. And so he had a concern that this church was well established and he had left some people there to minister. And now there's been an exchange of letters apparently where Paul has gotten an update on things in Philippi and now he's writing this letter to update them. Now the interesting thing is Paul's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't want this church to be shaken by that. He wants this church to have what we have been calling a serious joy. Uh, The main word running throughout this letter are are words like joy and rejoicing. We'll see that in our text this morning. So what Paul is trying to teach this church is what to build its joy on. There are many things that give us happiness, many things that give us joy. And we ought to take delight and happiness in every good gift that the Lord gives us. But there are some things 
that make our joy unshakable. There are some things, as one old preacher put it, that puts our joy beyond the reach of our enemies. These are the things that Paul really is underscoring in this letter. These are things that we have been calling passions. As we look at Philippians 2 verses 19 to 30, Paul comes into his second section in the letter where he's given them a personal update. So he's alternating between sort of pastoral instruction and personal update. And now he comes to give them the the second of his updates. And it has to do with sending messengers back and forth for the church's encouragement. If you are following along in the note-taking type, here's the main point I want to suggest from this text, from these 11 verses. Faithfulness produces joy. And there's a particular reason. Faithfulness produces joy because faithfulness puts Jesus and the church above all else. Faithfulness produces joy because it puts Jesus, our Lord, and the welfare of the church above all else. Now to unpack that, I want us to see three portraits of faithfulness. Three pictures of faithfulness, all sort of given to us by the three persons that are in this text. We're going to see a portrait of Paul, and there we learn that faithfulness sins and celebrates. That Christian faithfulness sins and it celebrates. Number two, faithfulness, from the picture we get of Timothy, faithfulness also cares and commits. It cares and it commits. And number three, when we look at Epaphroditus and the portrait of faithfulness he gives us, we'll see that faithfulness serves and sacrifices. Serves and sacrifices. So sins and celebrates, cares and commits, serves and sacrifices. And when this is happening in a church between the leader and the people, the leaders and the people, the offspring is joy. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow servant and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. First thing we want to see here is faithfulness sins and celebrates. That's really what we're seeing in Paul's actions and heart throughout the letter, but in this section of update itself. 
Paul is sharing his plans with them to send certain messengers to them, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and also, verse 24, his hope to come to them as well. The first thing we see is that faithful gospel ministry sends. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Verses 23 and 24, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. You cannot be selfish and hope to be faithful to others. Selfishness keeps for itself. Faithfulness gives away. Selfishness, like the seagulls on Finding Nemo, always cry, mine, mine, mine. But faithfulness cries, give, give, give. And that's what we see Paul doing here with with these uh, other men. And, and keep in mind, he's in prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. We might expect that holding on to brothers who are ministering to his need would be a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't put his need first. He's thinking about Christians and the churches elsewhere. And so he, in selflessness, sins. But notice with what heart he does that. Faithfulness not only sins, but faithfulness faithfulness also celebrates. Paul doesn't send Timothy and Epaphroditus grudgingly. Remember, he's just written in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling and questioning. So he hasn't now come to write this part. I'm going to send Timothy to you, but, you know, I don't really want to. That's not how he's writing these words. No, he... He actually anticipates joy. He anticipates the the joy of the church at receiving them, and he anticipates the joy of hearing news back. See, at the end of verse 19, he's sending Timothy so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And with Epaphroditus, notice the, the deep feeling that's going on in the letter as Paul talks about relief and Epaphroditus being near death. He says in verse 27, indeed, he was ill near death. And apparently in verse 26, the Philippians have heard about that and they've gotten worried. So, so see Epaphroditus there. He's like, look, I, I need to get back to Philippi because they know that I almost died and, and I want to care for them. And Paul is sending them so that they would receive Epaphroditus and, and no longer be anxious and, and that he would no longer be anxious. See, anxiety is a perfectly natural thing to feel in anxious situations. But instead, that anxiety would be replaced with joy. He says, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. You see, the entire exchange happens so that everyone would experience joy. That everyone would have this lightness and delight and gladness that comes from the Lord. You might think of it this way. Paul sends his best so everyone may feel their best. He sends his best servants so that the joy of the church would be multiplied. So when studying this text, I couldn't help but think of the ways 
ARC, you've done this as a church. Even as a very young church. A church that could justify holding on to its very best people because after all, we're still just a church plant. We're just still a a couple years old. But you didn't grasp jealously onto the best members of the church. Like Paul, you've joyfully sent some of our best folks. We, We sent some of our best people to plant Mercy of Christ Fellowship Church up in Northeast D.C. We sent one of our best pastors in Jeremy. And his very faithful and dear wife, Tiffany. And not only did we send Jeremy and Tiffany, but you sent members who had been a part of this church from the very beginning. Members who had proven worth to us as a church, like Timothy. Think, for example, of Stephanie Muniki, a faithful servant. That prayer warrior, Miss Connie Brown. Jeff Kelly is with us this morning. Jody Ash, and the sister we all love, Patrice Wedderburn. I mean, that's an all-star group. And any church would feel the loss of such people. But God's given you a spirit of generosity, of holding people loosely, to send our best folks to advance the gospel. And, and, and don't forget, we had those great saints to send because another church sent them with us. You see how the relay, the relay is supposed to work? The faithfulness sends and sends its best. And as a church family, you have joyfully sent some of our best people, not, off, not only with church plants, but off to seminary and, and Bible college to prepare for ministry, not here, but elsewhere. This July, another one of our beloved pastors who's been with us from the very beginning, Jahil Richards and Ka and their family, went down to Southeastern to, to study. What a loss that is in one sense. But how we rejoice to know that he's there studying and preparing and already has received a call to go to Shreveport to to pastor Springs of Grace Church there in Shreveport. The gospel is growing in such things. Or we think of our sister Nicole Noyes. What a steady, quiet servant she was. Many Many of you may never know just how much she did so cheerfully behind the scenes without ever raising a peep her little quiet self. She's at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School studying, getting her MDiv. Or our sister LaRonda, who's back with us now for a short time, a short time, a short time, a short time. Uh, and we're glad. We're also glad to see her do a year study last year and to see her go again to, to finish her study because we are planning her life. <laughs> and, and right from our first year, Some of you all will remember this wonderful brother who bleeds God's word. It's a little bit socially awkward, but in a cute way. Outstanding drummer, Niall Wartz and Stacy, faithful servants from the beginning, whom you encouraged and supported and sent to Southern Seminary to do his work on an MDiv that he might be fruitful in the work of ministry. We're just three and a half years old, beloved. We are just beginning. But I praise God for what he has worked in this family in the way of faithfulness to send 
and to support those who grow. Pray that that never changes for us. Pray that that gets multiplied. So faithfulness sends and celebrates. Number two, faithfulness cares and commits. That's what we see in the portrait of young Timothy. Faithfulness cares. Look there in verse 20. Paul says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's striking. Of all the people that Paul serves with and all the people that Paul knows in the Christian world and all the churches that Paul has been used of the Lord to plant, Paul says, listen, this man is the only one I have who genuinely is concerned for the welfare of the church. I have no one like him. Timothy's care for others strikes us because it's contrasted with those folks he mentions in verse 21. You see it there? He says, for they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Christ. And we don't know exactly who they all were, but it's probably a reference to the people Paul mentions in chapter 1, verse 15 and verse 17. Remember there where he says there's some people who preach Christ out of selfish ambition and envy. They don't do it sincerely. They actually preach Christ because they're trying to make Paul suffer. Paul says now, there's some folks who are looking out after their own interests. And if you go back earlier in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he's basically saying these folks don't have the mind of Christ because in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in verse 5, he says, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying here, there are some people around me. There are some people in the ministry who are seeking their own interests, not the interest of Christ. They have elevated their interests, not just above their brothers and sisters in the church. They have elevated their interests above the Lord of the church but not Timothy. He genuinely concerns himself with how the church is doing. I think it's probably the case that Paul wanted them to look to genuine caring leadership in Timothy rather than to be taken in by the self-interested teachers because whatever Jesus wanted, Timothy wanted. Whatever interested Jesus is what interested Timothy And that's why he genuinely cares for the church. And that's why he's faithful. But not only does he care, but notice number two, Timothy commits. You see that there in verse 22? You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul first met Timothy in Acts chapter 16. Somewhere around verses 6 to 10 or so, the Luke tells us in Acts 16 that there was a young disciple there named Timothy who had a good reputation with at least two churches in the region. And Paul takes young Timothy under his wings and Timothy begins to travel with him and observe the apostle's life and learn the apostle's teaching. And, and so much so that Paul says here, he's like a son working with his father. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2 that Timothy is his true child in the faith. There's a genuine father-son affection that grows up out of this relationship or grows in this relationship between Paul and Timothy. So that the gospel ministry is family business between the two of them. This is mom and pop, pop and son business. 
One of the things I love about my son is that whenever we get a good snow, Titus likes to go outside with me and shovel. Last year we had a big snow and I got up a little bit early to try and get the snow out the way before more came and he was sleeping in a little bit and he woke up to the snow. He had all that excitement because, you know, growing up in the Cayman Islands, snow days wasn't a thing, right? So he woke up to a snow day and first question he asked Chrissy is, where's dad? Are we shoveling? And I was already outside and he came bounding out the garage, bounding outside to help me shovel. It's, it's one of our things. We, we shovel together. He, he works with me in that. I, I look at Tim Ballard and little Timothy. And how often little Timothy and the girls are, are with their dad, setting up hospitality table and welcoming people and carrying out signs, signs bigger than him. He's carrying it outside to, to set up working with his dad. That's what the gospel ministry between Paul and Timothy was. And that's when the gospel ministry is sweet. It's when it's family doing together what family finds important to do. It's not contractual, it's not legal, it's not business, it's family. And that's what the church is, it's family. And so Paul here with Timothy, he commends Timothy because Timothy notices not only caring, but he's committed like a son to his father. And there's some applications, or at least a question we should ask ourselves. Looking at Timothy's life, genuinely concerned for the church in Philippi, why would or should one Christian leader or one church care this much about the welfare of another church or another leader? Well, first of all, it's because we all belong to one body. There's one church in Jesus Christ. There's a real sense then that whatever goes on in one church that believes this same gospel goes on with us. And, and, and what goes on with us goes on with another church. Our union with Christ should create empathy and sympathy with one another. That's the entire argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says that we are the body of Christ. Another reason we should care for other churches is because such care fulfills Christ's command that we love one another. Our love is not meant to be shared only with the membership of this church. Our love is meant to be an expanding, including thing. We should be capturing territory with our love. We should be expanding the borders of the church with an outwardly moving, outwardly focused love that, yes, is especially shown to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's constantly moving out to other churches and to non-Christians that they might discover and be brought into contact with the love of God. Because we are one body with all other Christians and because we are commanded to love other Christians, indeed to, to love even our enemies, we should try to do things that express that oneness and that love or care. For example, this is why we normally pray for other churches in our pastoral prayer. We're simply recognizing in prayer an impulse to love and care for all of God's churches and all of God's people. This is why we give to support the work of other churches. We are, yes, a church plant, praise the Lord, but we've been helping other churches from the beginning. 
So we have contributed financially to Risen Christ Fellowship in Philadelphia, and we praise God for his work there. We contribute financially to Mercy of Christ Fellowship. We partner with them in the advance of the gospel in that way. So we should practically, just as Philippi does here, we should practically express support of other churches, not just what the Lord is doing here, but what he's doing among all of his people. And we should join other churches in their programs and their outreaches. Some of you attend different speaking events sponsored by other churches. Some of you participate in outreaches like the Turkey Outreach that Mercy of Christ would do or, or Daybreak. Some of you volunteer at places like the House D.C. and serve there. It's just a million lanes to run in. And we should, as God sort of directs us individually, pick a lane, run with other Christians, advance the gospel. Doing these kinds of things helps us to be both caring and committed. But notice, caring and commitment really belong together. It's the combination that produces faithfulness. See, to care without commitment is empty feeling. A husband who says he cares for his wife, but never shows commitment, calls into question the claim to care, doesn't he? And commitment without caring is cold duty. A wife who shows commitment to her husband through various actions and acts of service, but doesn't care for her husband, doesn't honor or respect him, will turn the marriage into a machine rather than matrimony. Caring and commitment belong together. Care gives our commitment warmth, and commitment gives our caring power. To be faithful, we need both. So think about your relationships. At ARC, with your roommates, your spouse, your children, our co-workers, and ask yourself the question, are my relationships marked by both care and commitment? For that's how we'll be faithful in the relationships the Lord gives us. Which brings us to our third portrait of faithfulness. Faithfulness serves and sacrifices. We see that with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is mentioned by name three times in the Bible, all of them here in the letter to the Philippians. We don't know much else about him except what's in these few verses in Paul's writing. The first thing we learn about faithfulness as we look at Epaphroditus is faithfulness serves. See there in verse 25, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow uh, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. All of that sort of language of brother, which is family language, but also that language of fellow worker and fellow soldier is emphasized in their commonality in the ministry. With with Timothy, Paul emphasized the father-son relationship. There's a hierarchy kind of implied in that description. And it may be that Paul is lending some of his apostolic authority to Timothy in using that relationship metaphor. Now with Epaphroditus, Paul uses language that sort of emphasizes his equality with Epaphroditus. That we are fellow soldiers and fellow workers. We are on the same level, as it were. 
And again, he may be doing a, 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 very, a very similar thing as to with Timothy. He may be elevating Epaphroditus' sort of status among the Philippian church so that they would look at Epaphroditus rather than looking at those falsely motivated teachers. But what he's emphasizing here is that this is a man of service. So much so that an apostle talks about him as a peer. One who has a special commission to the church raises up Epaphroditus in status to himself. He's saying faithfulness looks like service. And isn't that what the Lord Jesus taught the disciples? Mark chapter 9, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. Jesus overhears them and Jesus says, listen, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Epaphroditus embodies that that, that Jesus taught instruction and spirit of serving others. But not only does he serve, but faithfulness sacrifices. Faithfulness sacrifices. The most dramatic uh, part of Epaphroditus is his willingness to, to give himself up, really, his own life for the work of the gospel and for Paul. Verse 27 says he was ill near to death. But that's not really kind of like he had a real bad cold or, or he had some kind of germ that, that went sideways, like that was some kind of accident. No, 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 no. Look at verse 30. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Zero in on that word risking. He intentionally, specifically, calculatedly risked his life, put his life on the line to serve Paul and to serve the church. According to Philippians 4.18, Epaphroditus had been chosen to deliver the Philippian gift to Paul. That's what Paul means in verse 25 when he talks about their messenger and minister to my need and what he means in verse 30 when he talks about what was lacking in their service to him. They had committed to financially support him. That financial support hadn't gotten there. It was in Epaphroditus' hands to bring it and deliver it at risk to himself. Maybe from highway robbers on the road in the ancient world. Uh, Perhaps from Uh, just danger in travel, or more likely in associating with Paul in his imprisonment. For Hebrews tells us that those who are of faith joyfully suffered the plundering of their possessions in order to identify with those in prison. So he risked being robbed by the prison guards and mistreated by the prison guards. He put his life on the line in order to to give. Pastor Dennis and I were working on a sermon for the day and discussing the text and the best preacher in my family walked into the kitchen, Christy. She made an interesting observation. She said, uh, she asked us a question. She says, how often do we risk in order to give? She said, we may risk to get, but not usually to give. I mean, I don't know, maybe you like me. When it comes to giving something, sometimes I'm like, well, if they want it, they'll come get it. <laughs> they ain't come get it. They must not want it. Don't raise your hand. Look down at the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Epaphroditus reaches another level of faithfulness, doesn't he? He risks his life to give to the needs of others. That's sacrificial faithfulness. Now, we should not miss the motivating factor that Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus share. We should see the passion they have in common. And it's this, they all put Jesus first. Above all else, at the center is Christ and the things of Christ. Paul puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, thinking about his own imprisonment, whether he's going to live or die, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, like, bring it with the left, bring it with the right. I got Jesus. That's what I live for. And notice now how Epaphroditus in verse 30, he, he risks his life for the work of Christ. It wasn't an aimless risk. It wasn't a purposeless risk. It wasn't an unfocused risk. It was focused on serving Christ and his church. And notice Timothy there um, in verse 21 of chapter 2. Timothy is the one who lives for the interests of Christ, not like those who live for their own interests. In these different ways, the Bible is telling us over and over again that the central animating passion of faithful Christians It's Jesus, the gospel, the coming kingdom. And all of their joy is connected to, I mean, their their deep, lasting, unshakable joy. Not all their joy. They got joy in other things too. Paul is glad that he's sending Epaphroditus so he doesn't have to worry about him no more. Paul like, that rascal stay too sick for me. I'm sending him back to y'all so I ain't going to be anxious, right? So there are other sources of joy, other things that we, we care about, that we should care about, that are important for us to care about, that in fact, if we don't attend to, we die. Like eating, resting, taking care of your body. So I don't mean to suggest that cares are altogether unimportant. What we want to see here is that their unshakable joy is connected to eternal things. Jesus and the gospel and the welfare of the kingdom and the church. That's their passion. That's why so much joy is running through this text. And that's why I framed the main point the way I did. Faithfulness produces joy because it puts Jesus and the church above all else. Well, you may put it this way. Faithfulness is the cultivation of Christian passion along with consistent dedication to serving that passion. Faithfulness is growing a a Christian, a uniquely Christian passion for Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom, and then marrying to that passion practical dedication to serving that passion. That's both the source of faithfulness and of unshakable, serious joy. So how are we to respond to the presence of an Epaphroditus or a Timothy? Verses 29 and 30 really give us the application for this this section. Paul says there, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ. You might call this the three R's of receiving faithful servants. Number one, receive him. Epaphroditus is a gift to the church. That's what Ephesians 4 says, right? That, that there are pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles and evangelists, so on, gifted teachers who are given to the church by the Lord. If Jesus gives you something, take it. 
Receive it. Accept it. Acknowledge the ministries of faithful persons because they didn't just become faithful persons by osmosis. Christ produced that in them and then gave them to us. And so the first thing we're to do is to, to simply receive. Lord willing, on Tuesday we'll have the privilege of voting on whether to call or receive our brother Tim Bowden and our sister Hannah Baker as deacon and deaconess among us. They've already accepted the title of deacon elect. <laughs> now that, that vote we should think about as practically discerning the Spirit's leading in our church. And that vote we should think about as an act, the first act, of receiving them, of welcoming and acknowledging and appreciating them as gifts from the Lord, if that's His will. But secondly, now, we not only receive them, but we, re we rejoice over them. Again, we're not to receive leaders with grumbling and questioning, chapter 2, verse 14. But notice here, he says, with all joy. All joy means complete joy. It's not one part joy and one part complaint. It's not, it's not mostly joy while saying, but you know, I got this one thing about them all. Uh, that, that, it's all joy. Faithful leaders are meant to inspire gladness and rejoicing in God's people. Now, that's more difficult than it sounds. I got an amen corner. Some folks who've been in the ministry and they know. See, we tend to think about faithful leaders. When we think about them, we tend to think that such leaders will never challenge us, never rebuke us, never correct us, never disappoint us, never disagree with us, never fail us. But remember, beloved, the best of men are men at best. And if a person is faithful to you, they will sometimes wound you. And I mean wound you in the spirit of Proverbs 27, verse 6. Where the writer of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You got somebody in your life and all they do is kiss on you? Tell you how great you are? tell you how sweet you are, tell you your stuff don't stink. They are not proving themselves to be friends. But a faithful friend will tell you the truth. Lovingly, graciously as best they know how, often hesitatingly, precisely because they don't want to wound you any more than the truth does. But that's faithfulness. And that doesn't always feel like joy. Not initially, but, but every surgical cut that removes a cancer, that opens a wound to let the pus flow, brings healing. And that will end in rejoicing. So choose friends who cut you lovingly, that you might have health from those faithful wounds. And rejoice, be glad, delight that God has given you such people to be a part of your life. So, receive them, rejoice over them. Number three, respect them. The Bible says here, honor such men. If leaders faithfully care and commit, serve and sacrifice, then the proper response from the people of God is honor. 
And that word honor is, is rich, really. It's a various meanings and uh, related meanings. And this is why it's translated differently in a couple of different texts. So in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18, Paul has listed a number of faithful uh, servants of the gospel. And he says there, give recognition to such men. It's the same word. There he's emphasizing the, the rightness of recognizing, acknowledging, celebrating faithful leaders, faithful servants. Same word shows up again in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes there, we ask you, brothers, to respect, same word, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That's what we we're just talking about in terms of correction. And then notice, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul says, look, we, we recognize, we respect. That's part of what uh, honor means. And he uses the word again in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And there Paul has in mind remuneration. He has in mind pay. By honor, Paul not only means social respect and appreciation, he means, he means support. He means holding up. And we ought to do that gladly and do that well. And as a church, you do. I'm not telling you anything here that you don't already do. I can speak confidently for all the leaders of the church. We feel your honor. We feel your encouragement. We feel your support. You express it to us in emails. You express it to us in conversation. And, and it, makes our, it makes our work a delight. It makes it a joy. But for application, let me just turn these into questions then. Number one, do you receive your leaders as gifts from God? You think about precious, so appropriately named. It's our first deaconess. And Lloyd, serving behind the scenes with A.V. and sound and his team. You think about Nick Rodriguez. Managing the budget as our deacon of budget. You think about your leaders. You receive them as gifts from the Lord. Well, number two, do rejoice? Do you rejoice over your leaders at, at all times, in, in all ways, including when they're doing the hard things of leadership that don't favor you? That's when it counts. It's kind of like submission in marriage. I love the way my wife puts this. She says, submission ain't submission until you have to do something you didn't want to do. Otherwise, it was just doing what you wanted to do. Uh, that's really good right there. Write that down. <laughs> Say that for later. <laughs> third question, third question. Do you respect your leaders? Do you respect your leaders? <laughs> Do you respect your leaders? Things to pray about, think about, talk about. So let's wrap this up. Faithfulness doesn't happen by accident. Faithful leaders do not just appear out of thin air. As we said before, God first makes a person faithful, then gives them to his church. So faithfulness is a God thing. Think about the qualities we see in the lives of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Faithfulness sins. Faithfulness celebrates. Faithfulness cares. Faithfulness commits. Faithfulness serves. And faithfulness sacrifices. Where have we seen those things before? 
the Father sends His Son into the world. The angels celebrate an announcement, joy to the world. In His love, in His care, Christ dies for us on the cross while we're still sinners. Jesus commits Himself to do the Father's will, which is to lead our rescue from judgment and hell. So Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to to sacrifice, to give his life as a ransom for many, the many who would believe. So Christian faithfulness really reflects the gospel. A faithful Christian servant is replaying in real time in the life of the church before others, the very motion and life of Christ our Lord. My friend, you will never meet a more faithful servant than Jesus Christ. Though he was God, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to rescue us from God's judgment coming against the world and to rescue us from the self-deceiving destruction of sin. And he rose from the grave three days later for our justification and for our victory over death and the grave and sin. He did this not because he needed a sacrifice for himself, but because he cared for us who through our sins had been separated from God and were in danger of his judgment. In great commitment, he goes to the cross and dies for us that he might redeem us and make us new and keep us to himself for our joy and his glory. The same Jesus offers himself to you this morning as as Lord and Savior. And in exchange, he promises you eternal life if you receive him by faith. Rejoice in his salvation and respect him, honor him as your God and your Lord. So you can, beloved, this morning, you can begin a life of receiving Christ. You can begin a life of rejoicing in Christ and respecting or honoring him right now. You need to do three things. Number one, acknowledge that you are a sinner deserving God's judgment. Admit it. Confess it. Say it back to God. It's no secret to him. He knows that about us already. If we pretend we're not sinners, we can only deceive ourselves not God. Acknowledge it. Admit it. Number two, believe. Believe that Jesus is the only Son of God. Believe that He is fully God and fully man. And believe that the Father sent Him into the world to rescue you personally. Not just to die abstractly for people generally, but to die for you, for your sins, to pay the penalty that your sins and my sin deserve. And believe that God raised him from the dead. Proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And proof that there is life beyond this one in a kingdom that he is providing. Admit and acknowledge. And number three, commit. Commit yourself to following Jesus in faith and obedience. And the obedience that comes from faith. Commit yourself to, to sort of submitting, not sort of actually submitting to his lordship to his rule in your life, and obeying his word where we discover his will most clearly. 
Commit to following him until he comes again or until he calls you from this life to the next one. Such a commitment never returns empty. That commitment will be hard, but it will be worth it. You will have to give up some things. You will feel some things you have not felt before. You will have to, as it were, die every day. But you will be living eternally in Christ. Admit, believe, confess, and Christ will be yours. So will eternal life and everlasting joy. If you do that this morning, please let us know. Talk with us after the service. We'd really like to encourage you and to pray with you. Or if you have questions about that this morning, you're entertaining it, let us know that too. We'd like nothing more than to try and answer your questions as best we can, that you might come to know this same Jesus that we know so confidently because he has known us first and loved us first. We'd love to tell you more about him. But in either case, pray to the Lord. Ask him for the gifts of repentance and faith that lead to eternal life. Ask a prayer he always delights to answer. Pray and receive the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for speaking so clearly in the Bible. So clearly of your holiness. So clearly of your love. So clearly of your mercy, which never ends. So clearly of your grace which, Lord, where our sins bound does much more abound. Thank you for telling us so clearly of heaven and hell and of the rescue that Christ accomplished on the cross. And thank you so t- for telling us so clearly of the joys and the delights and the pleasures that come with knowing you. And thank you, Lord, for the gift of servants, faithful servants who come and go whom we send and celebrate. Thank you for the gift of faithful women and men who care and commit. Lord, who, who serve and sacrifice. Make us glad as we consider them. Build us up with joy as we mark, O oh Lord, their lives among us. And give us more. Give us more such leaders and give us selflessness with them so that we might, Lord, years from now, lose track of the number who've gone out from this place to take your gospel to the ends of the earth or to the neighborhood next door, who have prepared and study and who are ready, O Lord, more fully to give themselves to your work. Teach us to honor such persons and to delight in them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.